At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Salam, salam. What is going on? I'm Peter J. Kim, and this is Counter Jam on the Food 52 Podcast Network, the show that celebrates culture through food and music. We're going to take a nod from this rhythm and take it a little slower here. Dig this group. This is a song by Ethiopian-American musician Kibram Birhane. The vibe, the harmony, the unique sound is a great nod to Ethiopian culture, which is the subject of today's episode. I'll be talking about injera etiquette, Berbere alchemy, and the magical mysteries of the Habesha egg with two Ethiopian-American chefs, Sarkadis Alemu in Santa Barbara, and none other than superstar Marcus Samuelson in Harlem. If there's one word you need to know in Amharic, the national language of Ethiopia, it's ishi. Ishi means cool, okay, groovy, right on. And this track right here is 100% ishi. To a non-Ethiopian ear, what gives Ethiopian music its distinctive sound is the fact that Ethiopian music revolves around pentatonic scales called kinyas. These scales are not quite like the major, minor, and blues scales that are more commonly known in the U.S. The variety of scales in Ethiopian music gives it a richness and complexity that sounds pretty damn cool. Once again, this is a song from Kibrom Birhane. It's called Get Up. That was Gedam by Kibrom Birhane. I've actually spent a fair amount of time in Ethiopia. My wife Stephanie worked for a little over two years in the capital Addis Ababa. Since I lived in New York City, it was one of the longest distance relationships you could imagine. I guess the upside was that I visited her regularly and got to really dive into Ethiopian culture. If you've been to Ethiopia, you know. The culture seems to march to the beat of its own drum. Ethiopians don't use the same clock or calendar as most folks. The Ethiopian morning starts at 1 o'clock and the sun sets at 12 o'clock. Ethiopian Christmas is in January. Their new year is in September. 
Unlike many other African countries, Ethiopia was never colonized, so its national language is its own, a language called Amharic. And while in West Africa it's not uncommon to hear 50 Cent or R. Kelly blasting out of bush taxis, in Ethiopia, Ethiopians listen to Ethiopian music. Its cuisine is starkly different from countries outside the Horn of Africa, with a sour fermented flatbread called injera as its staple and a fiery complex spice mix called berbere as one of its main flavors. So why is Ethiopia so idiosyncratic? Well, surely the fact that it was never colonized plays a part, but it can't explain it all. To borrow a phrase from Seinfeld, this is an enigma, a mystery wrapped in a riddle. My first guest, Chef Marcus Samuelson, is just about as enigmatic as Ethiopia itself. He was born in Ethiopia. At the age of three, his birth mother died from tuberculosis and he was adopted by a family in Sweden. Later, he moved to the U.S. where he has since launched a restaurant empire, become a public figure on television and as an author, and become something of a culinary renaissance man. We're going to start by learning about how Marcus first started building connections with his place of birth. I was born, um, now it's a, an hour and a half outside Addis Ababa, the capital in Ethiopia, uh, in a tiny village called Abrogadena. And, um, you know, it's one of those places when you go to Africa, you hit the roads and the savannah and it's red dust and red clay coming up everywhere mm. in your face, whatever you, wherever you're driving. And um, it, all of a sudden, there's no sign or anything. The road is only like two years old. Uh, before that, it was just mm. dirt road. And all of a sudden, right after the church, you take a right, and there's like 15 huts right there. And mm. you got to slow down drastically because... Now you're going to get, there's no more cars. Now you're getting, you know, mm. cows, ox, all kinds of animals, mm -hmm. dogs, kids, maybe a bike or so. <laughs> it's going to come. And, you know, you hear people cooking, you hear music, and then you take another ride, and then you're at our hut where I was born. The Sagais. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's probably as opposite as Los Angeles or Harlem or Sweden can possibly get from. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you have memories from when you were a child in Ethiopia? I, Peter, I don't have memories, but I have memories that are kind of like layered from the experience as what's been told to me by my older sister that had memories and then also what I've experienced as an adult, mm. right? So my sister was mm. five when we got adopted. So she has, you know, a lot of smell memories, a lot of visuals that she's been telling me since we were kids, right? And uh, like mm. even when we were coming up in Sweden, she knew her love for Injera, like because she was five, so basically our same age as my son. So she... She made injera, or she was part of it, and she was part of an experience much, much more mm. than I was. So I was only two, two and a half. So we talked a lot about this, and even the way we eat when we were coming up, if we ever had injera or berbere, Linda could, my sister, she could fully 
knew what to do. She knew how to to, to eat, and mm. I had to learn something. And I think as adopted kids, I think a lot right. of the adopted people can really relate to that you you're spending a long time understanding adaptability, right? Adapting into the new culture that you're part of, mm. adapting into the past culture, trying to understand what was that like. And um, it's kind of relatable to being an immigrant in a way, right? That you have these two homes and you're trying to fit in and um, it's a lifelong journey. Yeah, no, I can relate to that. I mean, you know, I'm not adopted, but, you know, when I go to South Korea, it's like I see this culture that I'm supposed to really identify with and I see echoes of it in my Midwestern upbringing. But obviously, like from the perspective of a South Korean looking at me, I'm pretty far removed from it. Um, and so it's, it's a really interesting process to think about, you know, what, how you sort of reconnect with that culture that you are, your, your, that your, your roots are in. Um, and indeed, in your memoir, uh, Yes Chef, you talk about the food you ate eating, you know, growing up in Sweden and how you started cooking at a young age. And I'm curious to know just like at what point or what role did Ethiopian food and flavors play for you when you were growing well, up? Well, I mean, I think my mother was really the one that wanted to make sure that Ethiopia wasn't lost on us as kids, right? Because very quickly mm. we became like Swedish kids, that, you know, ate Swedish food and, and, and so on, right? But yeah. my mom was always made sure that it was, there was an Ethiopian event happening in Gothenburg or outside Gothenburg that we pulled up. We were there. The Samuelsons were there. Yeah, yeah. And that site, I'll never forget it because it was very similar. It was a couple of Swedish mothers with adopted Ethiopian kids. And then there was some uh, immigrant Ethiopian families that were there that very often their moms had cooked for us. And, you know, just stepping into that room, it smelled different from injera, from Berbera, from all the stews. Mm. And my sister was just fluent in that space right away. And I was kind of a little bit more reluctant. But there was yeah, something yeah. that was intriguing to me about it. It was definitely, even if this just maybe happened five times through my whole childhood or something right, like that, right. I distinctively remember. And the music that, you know, was... At my home, we played a lot of Fila Kuti, a lot of Maria Makeba, a lot of Bob Marley. Uh, but the Ethiopian music was not that. It was of that, but it wasn't that. Right. Right? So yeah, I yeah. wasn't completely familiar with it, but the, rhythmically, it was something that I could relate to. Still, yeah. I've heard this kind of, sort of, at home. So that kind of lost in translation is a big part of... My childhood, yeah. actually. Are there particular food memories that really stick out in your mind from those meals that you would have? Yeah, I mean, we had Dorawat, and the stew was really spicy. And 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 <laughs> it was. I remember one time my grandmother wanted to come because she was really the main cooking force in our family, the food person in our family. Mm. And it was so foreign to her that you could have tablespoons of this red, sort of like smoked paprika flavor that she's related it to. Mm. And she watched these ladies. She literally just stood in the kitchen watching these women cooking. And she was, she was like blown away with how much spices <laughs> and how much onions. Uh, it's funny. Like I actually jokingly called Doro what onion what? <laughs> because Doro in Amharic means chicken. And, you know, the what is sauce. But like 
I'm sure you have experienced this, but when you go to Ethiopia and you have dorowat, it's really like a lot of sauce and then like these tiny pieces of chicken in there because chicken is so expensive yeah. in Ethiopia. <laughs> um, yeah, but, you know, Ethiopian food, if you think about it, Peter, it's largely a vegetarian cuisine, hmm. right? And then the meats, the lambs, the chicken, the meats that gets pulled in are really there to break fast, whether it's from the Orthodox cycle or Muslims or um, Jewish cycle, it, it, it's really there just as, hey, we just, I think there's 220 fasting days in Ethiopia, right, in yeah. the calendar. That doesn't mean you don't eat. It just means that on Wednesdays you don't eat butter, on Fridays you don't eat meat, yeah. etc. So it becomes this very sort of rich vegetarian cuisine based on stews, and the, the mother of that is really um, shiro, which is this chickpea stew. Yeah. And I think shiro is so important because that's something that every Ethiopian, whatever class, whatever money, whatever religion, can eat. Yeah. So this is really the foundation. That would, I would look at that as, as fundamental as potatoes would be in Swedish culture. I think of shiro as being like, instant ramen in for a Korean American household. Like yeah. when you're hungry and you want something delicious in just like a few minutes, you just like whip up some yes. instant noodles and it's a comfort food. And I feel like a lot of, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of Ethiopians kind of feel that way about Shiro. Yes, yes, yes. Today, Marcus is married to his wife, Maya, who is also someone who was born in Ethiopia, raised in Europe and moved to New York City. Together, they have a child named Zion. I asked Marcus about the role of Ethiopian food for him and his family today. One of the best comedy shows that can you can happily be part of, you can come to my house and during any Ethiopian holiday. Uh, first of all, I'm not even allowed in. Maybe I can <laughs> chop the onions and they're like my knives. Um, but my wife and her sisters, they come in to, they fly in from, from Toronto or from London. Mm. And the holidays in Ethiopian culture, it is about spirituality and food. And food yeah. is like, it's all about the food. So the idea that I would even make the Ethiopian food is like a laughing stock. They're like, <laughs> Marcus is doing what? No, 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 no. He can chop the meat, maybe even butcher. Maybe I can go and get the milk product for the fresh cheese they're going to do. But most likely <laughs> I will get that wrong. And then once I bring it home, it's like, thank you. And everything is like, it's not as good as Ethiopia, but it will do. So that's like the, that's the, the, that's the opening. That's good morning. That's good night. That's everything. And then, you know, so I was like, great. So I'm just going to be with Zion. And, you know, Zion and I run around and uh, just watch these amazing her name is Alema it's our auntie my assistant from Toronto and other cousins you know people come from DC and the house just gets transformed to this sort of Ethiopian smells music clothing candles burning the sage and I love it and it's just one of these things that when you always drive in the kitchen it's so nice to just watch this kind of like brick by brick. Let's say the holiday is over by Sunday. It starts, it starts the Sunday before because we, we made the fermented butter. 
Right, then right. you start on that Tuesday, start to pile up on TEF. Yep. Uh, on Wednesday, you start making the injera batter and it's kind of sour and you got to find the right plastic bucket. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so it's, it's all of these things that I know that is part of who I am. Yeah. But I'm quite fully haven't graduated to do the stuff. Yeah. But then when it comes to the eating, I'm all in. Elbows <laughs> up, let's dive in. I'm that guy. Yeah. I love the idea of an Ethiopian recipe having as like preparation time, seven days. Yes. You know, <laughs> serving, number of servings, 30 to 40. You know? <laughs> Just a different scale. You got it. You got it. <laughs> That's exactly the vibe. But then there's also other things that we that we very sort of like focused on the dish in very often in Western culture, but in Ethiopia there's also all these other things around it, right? It is the rooms got to get burnt out with sage, for example. What fermented beverages have we started to make, right? So this yeah. tedge, this honey wine. Mm. So it's layerism of culture that it doesn't mm. take a day to build. And therefore, I think the celebrations also is so strong, right? It's something yeah. that takes time and plenty of people to contribute yeah. to. Yeah, and yeah. In, in that making, right, you realize you're part of the community. Like on Friday, another cousin comes. On Saturday, the kids are, you know, the house is filled with kids. And on Sunday, the dinner is just like any other dinner, but it's just all the build up to that. Let's turn to my other guest. Sirkadis Alemu, a chef who serves up traditional Ethiopian food at the Santa Barbara restaurant Le Petit Valentin. Her place of birth was not too far from Marcus's. I was born and raised in Addis Ababa. Uh, there was a hospital called, um, it has changed many, many times, but it used to be called Zodito Hospital. And um, mm. it was built... Um, by a seven Adventist community. So I was the first generation in my family born in a hospital. So we have uh, a legitimate mm. birth certificate, per se. <laughs> <laughs> I asked Circadis about the kind of food that was cooked up in her home kitchen. Or rather, I should say home kitchens. So the food that we ate is, I would say, 80% heavy vegetables and grains. And then you'll mm. get meat uh, on a... Occasional part of it, it was my family's religion not to be heavy meat eaters. But if there is a mm -hmm. respected guest that comes, then you know you can go from the chicken all the way to the, the ox. And I seen all of mm -hmm. that prepared. So we have what we call a traditional kitchen and an in-house kitchen. So most Ethiopian mm -hmm. houses, you know, the house I grew up had two two kitchens. Um, I, as right. you know, familiar with Ethiopian food is potent. It's a lot of spices. There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of drumming going on, you know? An indoor kitchen and an outdoor kitchen. I mean, that just makes a lot of sense. I had to ask Circadis about what the outdoor kitchen was like. So what makes it different is that the outside kitchen is everything is done in open fire. Um, so mm -hmm. usually everything is made of cob. So you'll have one section that would have two holes in it and an, an insert of like where you put your wood. That would be where you put your pots for cooking. And then in our mm -hmm. kitchen on the farther right, there's a bigger disc. So that would be used mm -hmm. where we make our bread. We make a big loaf of bread, mm -hmm. which we call difodabo. 
So that mm. what makes the inside kitchen different is like everything was electrical. So we have electrical pan right. to make orangetta and electrical stuff to kind of warm up your stew that you make in the outdoor kitchen. So that that was the main thing. So to keep the smoke and like the big spice smell that you would get when you roast your spices and stuff, not to have your house smell for months of berberi. Yeah. Um, so that would be the difference. Indoor kitchen would be more electrical. Outdoor kitchen would be like open fire. Oh, and I'm sure that cooking in that way with those tools in the outdoor kitchen produced a different flavor profile than what you would get in a, you know, electric kitchen inside. For sure. Without a doubt, the aroma of the wood smoke combined with like whether it be a, a bread or whether it be a meat, it definitely did. And I did appreciate the outdoor kitchen than I did the indoor kitchen. The food seems to lighten up, brighten up more. For Circadis, it's clear that the flavors of her home cuisine have stayed with her. I asked her what stuck out most in her memory. I mean, every single food stick out to us because we ate and seasoned. So it's not like you go to a grocery store and you get like potatoes year around, cabbage year around. So you dwelled on whatever the season was bringing. So every vegetable, everything, like every time I eat it, it brings a moment because it's a capsule of time. Mm. So in the four seasons that we eat, you know, if it's cabbage season, you ate cabbage and potato and carrots, you know, and beets. And we made it all kinds of way. You know, we do it in turmeric. We do it in berberi. You roast them. You fry it. Mm -hmm. So you you keep trying many, many different ways because that's all coming at you from the garden. So I I can't really, you know, say one thing stood out, but every single thing stood out because you kind of live and breathe it for a few months. Yeah. I have to say, so I, I spent a fair amount of time in Ethiopia, as I think I told you. And I found it really interesting. The vegetables there all taste just quite different, actually, from what you find here. And they're, I would say, generally speaking, they f- it feels like they're tougher, they're smaller, and they're more flavorful. Um, like the, the carrots just have such an immense amount of flavor. Um, the celery, I remember it feeling like I really had to, I, I remember having to really cut it up fine because I felt like it was just a little tough to chew. But there was just so much celery flavor in it. I don't know if it's, the, if it's the altitude of the varieties or the uh, growing methods, but yeah, I, I just felt like the flavor of everything was just a little different there. You're right. Everything comes in small package, <laughs> but with a yeah, yeah. big bang of flavor. Um, and, and I really attribute that to the soil. Um, I, yeah. I think the soil is just so full of all these beautiful minerals. And I mean, the beet, like mm-hmm. I can eat raw beet there and just be like, who needs ice cream, you know? Like, yeah, like, like, have you ever caramelized the carrot? Like you say, the carrots are so sweet, you Mm. know, you caramelize them a little bit and it just out of this world. Yeah, they're just full of flavor. Oh, the potatoes, too. I mean, I I just I had like I had some just, you know, normal potato tips when I was there, which is, you know, the fried potatoes. And oh, my God, it was like just so, so good. Um like my wife and I both were, we were in a, like a music venue. There's so much noise going on. We both paused and we're just like, these potatoes are amazing. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, actually, uh, on a side note, I jokingly uh, use as a term of affection for my wife, Tinnish Dinich. 
Oh, <laughs> that's sweet. Which of course just means little potato, but it kind of rhymes. So yeah, we call each other Tinnish Tinnish. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And it's funny, in French, it's petite patate. And so we'll yes. alternate between calling each other tinnish dinnage or petite patates. And, um. Oh, that's great. I think I might, have, I might have to steal that from you because my youngest daughter can't live without potatoes. Like, just loves potatoes. So from now on, I might steal that from you and call her tinnish dinnage. Yes, go for it. <laughs> Speaking of big flavor in small packages, I talked to Marcus about my single favorite Ethiopian ingredient. The ingredient I get most excited about um, is the egg. <laughs> in, in Addis in particular, there's like two different kinds of eggs you can buy. One would be the, um, um, the Habesha egg, which means like sort of like local egg. And yeah. the other is the um, Faranji egg, which is like the, the foreigner egg. So yes. that's in the supermarkets. Yeah. And the Faranji egg, which is the foreigner egg, is more expensive. And it's got like the thicker, it's like the egg we know, right? And then the habesha egg is this little yeah. thing. It's almost like a pullet egg. It's got a super brittle shell. Like if you sneeze on the thing, it'll explode in your hand. Yes, yes. Welcome <laughs> to my world. <laughs> but damn, I'm like, when you crack open those habesha eggs, it's like a qualitatively just totally different product. Yes, it's, it's intense. It's smaller. And the egg yolk is super bright. And oh, yes. God. I love that. This is like your Ethiopian points are going up. There's not a lot of non-Ethiopians that would know the difference between Ferengi and Habish eggs. This is very good, Peter. <laughs> I couldn't help but wax poetic about the Habesha egg to Circadis too. My wife knows when we go to Ethiopia, one of the first things we do is I run out to a kiosk, I get my Inkulal, you know, Habesha Inkulal, and then I'm like make an omelet with like six of them because they're so small. And, uh, and it, I'm in pure heaven. So uh, I don't know if you've tried the, if you've noticed the same kind of difference with the eggs. I think my heart just like cried a little because <laughs> <laughs> my daughter, my daughter tells me, mommy, can you make me yellow eggs? Because she can't say Avishankulad. Because we, <laughs> you are right. Like the Ethiopian eggs are, it's seriously, you just touched my heart. Like, it's just like one of my favorite things. <laughs> I mean, when we go to Ethiopia, that's the first thing we do, looking for Avishankulad. Because like Ethiopian eggs are like becoming really a rare thing now. Uh, like you say, we're mm. getting a lot of foreign eggs. They're white. They have no flavor. So not yeah. only me are like love Ethiopian eggs, even my, you know, seven year old, she calls them yellow eggs because, you know, the color is added, the taste and we can go through 40 eggs in a week. No problem. <laughs> oh, yeah. Easy. Uh, easy. Like I said, my standard is I do a six egg omelet yes. for myself <laughs> with that because I just I'm like you know what I am going I I just love these eggs so much. Um, and uh, I was telling Marcus that the one thing I noticed is like when you beat the eggs, like it sticks to the side of the bowl, yes. and I think that just shows you the kind of like consistency you're dealing with. Big, big shout out to the Habesha egg. In my humble estimation, one of the culinary wonders of the world. If you like eggs, get thee to Ethiopia. And when you're there, skip the supermarket and grab a bag full of these little guys. We're going to take a second to talk about Ethiopian dance. Another beautiful aspect of Ethiopian culture is that its local dance traditions are alive and well. 
This song by Kibrom Bihane draws on the traditions of the Amhara province. The song is called Eskista, which is the name of the dance form associated with the rhythm. It involves incredibly complex movement of the hips, arms, shoulders, and neck. Circadis had a fascinating insight into the Eskista dance form. Ethiopia is a bird country. We have so many birds. And then if you can imagine a bird coming out of the water and shaking like its feather, you know, that's the skista. And <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So I, I, I look at Ethiopians like, so the northern part, the way they do it, we have these crazy amount of birds. They look like birds to me, you know? And, and yeah. you know, it's just this really, and then, you know, sometimes birds do their neck thing, you know, back and forth, and then kind of peek up yeah. and down. And it's like, this makes sense, you know? And, and when I traveled throughout the southern part of Ethiopia, same thing, you know, the dance changed because the environment changed, you know? The birds were different, the animals were different. So you're like, ah, so it's like, even the dance is within like that Ethiopian boundary, everything kind of influenced everything. So while you listen to this track, channel your inner bird and shake your tail feather. This is Eskista by Kibron Birhani. staples of Ethiopian food in Jera and Berbera, as well as some essential Ethiopian table manners you must know. Stay tuned. When I think about Ethiopian cuisine, there are two foods that immediately come to mind, injera and Berbera. We're going to take a closer look at them. And let's start with Berbera, which is a blend of a dozen or more spices. On one trip to Ethiopia, I happened to be there during Berberay season, the time of the year when Ethiopian families make their own Berberay spice. Even in a major city like Addis Ababa, you could see people drying red peppers outside their houses everywhere. I was struck by the realization that all these families were making Berberay. I mean, in the U.S., who is actually drying their own hot peppers and grinding their own spices to make chili powder? Well, not too many folks, and certainly not me. 
Here's what Sarkadis had to say about that. Growing up, I've been really blessed. Everything was made in our house. Um, so the Burberry, you know, you just like uh, your season here, which most uh, jalapenos are grown in the summer area. So you'll find them here. Mm-hmm. Like the best jalapeno in the state are like between June and July, August. Mm-hmm. The sun is, it'll get there a little bit more spicier. So in Ethiopia, you can get Burberry any time of the year. But the best time to buy them is the summer, which I find mine, uh, which I go in and mostly in the northern part, around February. Best time to get them. Mm-hmm. February in mm-hmm. Ethiopia. Then you get the Berberi, which has to dry red. It has to turn red on the vine. Then every family would goes and there's grates. There's number one, number two, number three, number four, meaning like your pocket, mm. your pocket matters with it too. <laughs> <laughs> and the level of spiciness goes with that grating. And then you have Berberis you do for our, you know, Dorowet which is totally different than like you make a Burberry just like on your day-to-day for your lentils and your potatoes. Um, mm. So once that pepper comes in, everybody brings it and then you lay it out in the grass. I mean, you lay it out like outside. And then depending on the house, because like you say, everybody makes their own Burberry. And then of course, everybody's house Burberry tastes different because the more spices you put in it, the more flavor for it is. And if you don't have the means to do that, you can still work with it. So in our house, uh, once the Burberry comes in, when it, when you the reason you see a sun sun drying is one to make sure there's no moisture in it. Two, in mm. our house, it used to get rubbed with garlic and ginger, and mm. then you dry that out to make sure the garlic and ginger is dried evenly. Then it becomes like what you know here as your crushed red pepper that you put on your pizza. Then it gets right. grounded like that. Then you keep on building on the spices, you know, the fenugreeks, the cardamom, the cumin, like cloves, salt. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. Yeah. And it's so interesting that, I mean, it just seems like it's such a complex spice blend. How, you know, how are the, how does one even know how to make berbere? You know, is it just something that's passed along? Yes, uh, like I say, each family has their own recipes and each family, obviously, um, you know, cardamom and cumin, coriander, they're very expensive. So houses that Mm. that can afford to add that, their blend tastes different. Um, So each Mm. family, because, you know, again, it gets passed down and passed down, passed down to you that has their own blend. But nowadays you can you can go to the big market, you know, Mercato, go to the spicy section. You can blend as much as you like. Um, so there's the common knowledge of like, you know, the list of Berberi spices, then you could just go ahead and make that done. But, uh, but each house have their own, you know, their own touch because that's what makes your, that's what makes your spice. Again, since culinary was intertwined with women, um, women's like Mm. marriage, each woman would create her own spice. So they'd be like, oh, you know, Sarkadis is bad, but you can't touch it, you know? And of, of, <laughs> yeah. of course, the other thing I explained to you is there's no such a thing as measuring cups. So people, when they right. say, you know, my hand, that's an equivalent to like one cup of that person. So that person's hand could be bigger than mine, smaller than mine. So maybe she puts a little bit more cumin, a little bit of salt, a little bit mm. of cardamom, because that happens that's where the difference comes really, not from the spices. It's the quantity of yeah. spices that goes in it. I think it's really a beautiful concept to think about Berbere being almost like the sort of culinary fingerprint of each family. For sure. At least that's the way, I, when I grew up, that's the way it is. And this brings me to Injera. 
It is damn near impossible to overstate just how important injera is to Ethiopian cuisine and culture. I'm going to ask you a very stupid question, which is, if there's one staple food in Ethiopia, what would it be? Oh, hands down, injera. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you can't you can't live without injera. And uh even when I serve it here in, in Santa Barbara, the first thing I told them is like, you know, watch out. Injera is like Ethiopian people. See that you like it or you don't, you know? But then once you <laughs> once you do, like it has like I really think we might eventually might need an AA for it. You know, you it's like kind of you crave yeah. it. You you would drive and you'd go out of crazy, like Yeah. My my wife has a T-shirt that she bought in Addis Ababa that says, "If there's no injera in heaven, I don't want to go." Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Which I actually think that a lot of Ethiopians would <laughs> subscribe to. Completely agree. I mean, it's it's you crave it if it's out of your system. Even if, like, for somebody who it's a daily, three times a day let alone us who gets it like once a month or something, you'll crave it. You'll, you'll drive yeah. miles and miles, you know? And for years in, in the state, we didn't get 100% tafe and jetta. So the saying goes, you yeah. know, uh, lie to your stomach, eat with your eyes. So it looks like in jetta, right. <laughs> like, so you eat it. But yeah, in jetta, hands down. And while we're on the topic of in jetta, I shared with Marcus one of my pet peeves when I hear folks talk about it. I actually also just be kind of contrarian. I also will gently correct people when they say that injera is an Ethiopian crepe. And I'll be like, you know what? Crepes are French injera. <laughs> like, let's switch it around here. Thank like, why you. is the crepe the reference Thank point? <laughs> and they were making injera about 2,000 years before they were making crepes. So I love that. I would say this most similar style, it is I would say dosa is the most similar yeah. uh, because they have a fermentation part. Of course, yeah. injera is not flipped, yeah, yeah. but um, I would say if that's anything that you would compare to, yeah. would be dosa. All right. So there's my PSA. Let's stop talking about injera as an Ethiopian crepe. So let's get into the nuts and bolts of injera eating. In a typical Ethiopian meal, injera is served to you in two different ways, underneath various stews and dishes, and also rolled up on the side. And the way that it's eaten is pretty far removed from the Western practice of everybody eating everything on their own plate. Traditionally, culturally, uh, it's a communal effort. It's like meaning like everybody eats in a circle, which we have what we call mosev, and then you get tiri, which is like a big disc, uh, big plate, you know. Um, like some of them can be up to like 24, you know, inches mm. wide. You know, you can have a big. Circadis went over some essential rules at the Ethiopian dinner table. Get your notebook out. This will serve you well the next time you're noshing on injera. Rule number one, stay in your lane. When you're in a circle, let's say there's like seven of us, five of us. There is a, a common dish that will be in the center of the plate. Mm -hmm. So usually, if it's not fasting, a meat dish. And it'd be spicy, mm -hmm. you know, it's a meat dish. So that's the, it, within a communal plate, there's a communal center. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that, there would be a main dish that sits in the middle. In front of you, usually you would have between two to three dishes. 
then mm-hmm. one three dishes will be in front of me and then you'll get another three dishes. So there'll be like all five of us or six, seven of us will get our own three dishes because you can't have Ethiopian food without variety. So mm. you have to eat from your 90 degree, right? From your 90 degree, <laughs> you're working into that main dish, the center dish. Of course, you can, mm-hmm. you can go in and dip in the center dish. But to be polite, you don't want to dip in there first. Rule number two, pay your respects to the cook. And then as you do it, of course, you have to feed people, which you call, we, we call gursha. And mm-hmm. gursha has many, many, many um, angles of in our culture. But the main thing about gursha is the person that made that dish for you, because you're a guest, they cannot sit and eat with you because they're the hostess with the mostess, right? They're walking mm-hmm. around, making sure you're eating. So you'll pick up some of the dishes and you feed that person who made the dishes for you. So you have to do gursha. That's like... Uh-huh. The out of everything that Gusha represent, you have to feed that person that's made that dish for you because as of respect to you, they won't sit down to eat it with you. Right, right. Rule number three, don't steal someone else's injera. As you work your way to the center, you can't like reach over someone and start taking injera. If you're injera and somebody will see you like, oh, like Peter's low on injera, so they would rip their injera <laughs> and they don't hand you the injera, they put it in front of your side of the plate and then you pick it up and, uh-huh. and you do it. Rule number four keep it clean. And there will be no licking fingers. No, no, no. You know, <laughs> nobody wants your germ. Like we just want to eat together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, the constant, there will be no constant hand wiping either. You just you, right, you're right. in there till you're done, and it, as you right. I get as you get used to eating in Jedi, like you 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 don't even get it on your fingers, and that's another right, trick right. thing. So that's like I love Ethiopian communal eating etiquette in that sense. It's so true. I think newcomers to the cuisine, there are a few things I notice. One is that they'll have like oily red hands because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like they didn't properly handle their injera. Yeah, I'll interject here with rule number five. Leave no injera behind. The other newcomer mistake I I often see happen is that people go too far with the rolled up injera before going into the foundation injera. And then they get too full to eat the foundation injera. I don't know what the right term is for that. That's like what I call it. And to me, like the stuff that's been under the the stews is the most delicious one of the part. And it's always such a shame when you see people sending back like all of the like the 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 that injera yeah and because they eat too much of the rolled up stuff yeah the best you know <laughs> you you get the rolled up injera again because you're working your way in you need a starting injera that's the way I see it so as you yeah, as yeah. you start picking up the the stew then you get to the bottom injera which as children that's the one we fought over because it has like all the right. juices it's all marinated like think of it like a marinated meat or like tofu waiting for you you know it's like who mm. would want to not eat that like you don't want to leave that on the side yeah. so yes you're right the bottom of injera that you get your stew on is the best part but that's how if you work your way from the out inward in there's no way like missing that bottom injera which is you know yeah, uh, for sure. 
I don't know. I, I do. I do see it at the. <laughs> I do see it at the restaurant. People would ask in Jeddah. You know, I'm like, you're gonna eat all of it, right? Because I won't let them. Like, <laughs> I said, like, you're eating that bottom in Jeddah. Like, I am not throwing that out. You know, like so. It is. It is a newcomer, like unaware that they think maybe that's the tray. I'm not sure. Like, I don't know how. It, yeah. I don't know how it gets translated. But that is the best part. Like, out of all the dishes you get, that's the best part. You know. Um, yeah, my wife knows this is something I agonize over and I'm, I watch people who are eating the meal and I'm always like thinking when people are going to switch from the rolled up injera to the bottom yeah. injera and I just am like, switch earlier than you think you need to. Yeah, like, yeah. You cannot let this go to waste and um, I'm always thinking about that almost to, to an extreme. So. Yeah, and, and the other thing is like even if you think you run out of injera, all you have to do is pick up the edge of injera from the tray and push your stew forward so you can get that injera out and then start, you know, working your way in. While injera certainly is a food that unites Ethiopia, what goes on the injera or next to the injera can differ quite a bit depending on where you are. All of Ethiopia has amazing food and very, very distinct. If you go us, go up in the Tigray region, for example, that's where a lot of the honey comes mm. from. So you have amazing honey, but also incredible edge like that incredible fermented honey drink. And obviously this week, there's been a lot of postings about Anthony Bourdain, yeah. rest in peace. And uh, one of the first things that we did uh, when we, him and Maya and I traveled with him to Addis was to go to a Tej house, a traditional Tej house, mm. which is really, think really like a beer hall, but it's all with honey wine. And that was one of his favorite places because the people that work at the market and extremely sort of blue collar uh, beer hall. Uh, Tony walks in and orders Ted for everybody, and it just set the tone. And I, it's actually one of the pictures that I posted was was this week was from that. Memory. Oh yeah. So that comes from that region. In the Roma region, it's where you have enormous amount of coffee, yeah. with Ethiopian coffee. Very different regions. The uh, Amhara, where I'm from. Uh, Dorawat, the chicken stew, has its origin from there. Oh, wow. And then you think about, there's also regions everywhere there is raw fish culture mm. by the lakes, you know, very similar to crudo more than sashimi, but it's sliced thin and then it's sort of um, seasoned with a lot of berbere and hung. So the, it, it varies. It varies so much. And as you get closer down to the south, to Kenya, some people don't eat injera at all, you know. Then you get yeah. closer to sort of um, what you find a lot in Kenya and in Tanzania, which is ugali, yeah. which is this kind of like um, corn porridge that you find throughout Africa. So it it, it varies in difference, um, and uh, it's a it's a country of 110 million people with several different tribes. But it's a it's a beautiful place that very often get misrepresented. I asked Marcus the standard counter jam question if you were stuck on a deserted island and you had to eat one Ethiopian dish for the rest of your life, what would it be? I think it would be um, shiro because it, it's the perfect meal, right? You get your protein from the chickpeas. You can try it, mm. right? Super important. You have water from the ocean that you can boil. So you're good. And then knowing being on an island, we'd probably catch some fish or 
there's some leaves that you can convert kind of mm. to a version of collards or kale or spinach or something like that. Mm. And with, with a bucket of chickpea flour, I'm good. I got all the, <laughs> all the things you need. And I know we can know, know how to make it delicious because on that island there might be some ginger growing or some garlic growing, and we're good. We're good. I love it. There might even be one of those habisha eggs as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Leave it to a chef to go outside the box by talking about what he'd forage on the island. Here's Circadis's response. Oh, this is hard. This is really hard. Because I know it's an island and I need to preserve, it would be kolo. I love kolo. I love kolo. <laughs> Can you just explain what kolo, we have a bag of kolo we just bought actually that uh, we've been munching on, but uh, could you describe what kolo is? Well, kolo is usually a roasted barley. You get Ethiopian sunflower, Ethiopian uh, peanuts, and then Ethiopian chickpea, which is they all, like, as we talk, we all, they're all small. And even the, the Ethiopian sunflower, it's like, it's amazing, you know, and that, and then that gets rubbed in a little bit of salt, sometimes with berberi, of course, you can't go out without berberi. And it's, it's like, once you start, you can't stop. It's you just, <laughs> you keep chewing and chewing and chewing, you know, and it's filling, it's tasty, it has texture. Um, so that's, that's how the Kolo blend works. And I, I just love it. I love it. I love it. Ishi, ishi. I have a bag of Kolo at home and I can fully confirm the stuff is mad tasty. Before we listen to this track, I wanted to give another shout out to the beautiful dance forms found across Ethiopia. Many of them can be quite physically demanding. It's a good gym class, you know, if you have, a, you know, I always say that, like one of the most fun gym classes, you know, go to Ethiopian wedding and do a little bit of all of the tribes dancing. You're good after an hour. You don't have to go to the gym that day. You're good. This song is inspired by the music of Tigray in the north of Ethiopia. Tigrinya dancing involves full body movement and plenty of jumping around. So I'd encourage you to get into that Ethiopian ishi mindset and try bopping around to it. The song is called Bogize Lekulu by Kibrom Birhane. <laughs> That's it for season two of Counter Jam. I want to express my deepest gratitude to those of you who have left thoughtful reviews of the show on Apple Podcasts. They mean truly a lot to me and the Counter Jam production team, so I just want to say thank you. Shout out to our esteemed guests, Marcus Samuelson and Sirkadis Alemu. Shout out to Kibram Birhane for the tunes. Please consider buying his music on Bandcamp. 
shout out to Food 52, Perry Sultan, and a double issue with a Habesha egg on top to Coral Lee, the show's talented producer. I'm Peter J. Kim, and I'll catch you in a little while for season three of Counter Jam.